You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of six lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Becoming Fully Human, The Significance of Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life, translated by Jeff Martin. They were given uh, at The Hague from April 7th to the 12th, uh, 1922, and there's also a written report by Rudolf Steiner on the course that will be read. Uh, It's called The Six Lectures Given at the Anthroposophic University Course. Collected Works, Volume 82. Lecture 1. Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life. The Hague, April 7, 1922. What I have to say this evening will only be a modest introduction to what I will endeavor to discuss here in the coming evenings on different aspects of anthroposophy. Anthroposophy did not come about by asking, what are the needs What is our current age searching for? What interests and longings does this current age have with regard to its spiritual life? These would be abstract questions. And just as you generally cannot find what you are looking for in ordinary life without having a proper idea of it, so we will likely not be able to satisfy a search in the spiritual life of an epoch if we do not already start from a very specific concrete idea of what this age seeks. However, although anthroposophy did not start from these abstract questions, it is able, now that it has developed, to spiritually satisfy, in every sense, the most important questions and needs of our age. Anthroposophy emerged out of the needs of science itself, as this science has developed in our age after having completed its great, mighty, triumphal march through the last three to four centuries. Anthroposophy has emerged from this scientific approach, while at the same time attempting to carefully examine what the Goethean worldview can deliver in a fruitful way for the scientific spirit of the present day. Thus I can say, please allow this personal remark, that when the necessity of an anthroposophic spiritual science arose for me, it was, on the one hand, from the opinion that the current scientific spirit must develop toward a comprehension of the supersensible from out of science itself, and on the other hand, from what could be gained through a living conception of the Goethean worldview, which was itself connected with this scientific endeavor. I had been searching for such a development for anthroposophy since the 80s of the last century. When we hear views about anthroposophy today that are formed more superficially, they often sound as if anthroposophy emerged from a dark mystical volition out of the chaos of the spiritual life of the civilized world during and after the catastrophe of the war. That is by no means the case. Anthroposophy has worked for decades in a serious way, as may well be stated, and has emerged from completely different conditions. But as I said, now that anthroposophy is here, the question can be asked, does it meet a need, 
a longing in the spiritual life of our time? In order to answer this question, you will have to look at the special character, at the deeper peculiarities of the spiritual life of our age. I believe you will will first of all find a particularly characteristic feature. Certainly when you say something like this, someone else can take numerous exceptions to it, and they shouldn't even be denied this. But what I want to characterize is the general trait in the lives of the people of this age. Do we not have to tell ourselves today, when we have gotten a little older, that we are mostly approaching the tasks of life now without much joyfulness, without enthusiastic devotion? This seems like a pessimistic view, but it doesn't want to be. You just need to look with open eyes at what is really a sweeping feature in the life of contemporary people. We grow up, are taught, and are usually brought further on in life. If we then take up a profession, if we face the sufferings and even the joys of life, still we do not know how to find our way in the world today with our full humanity. And from this trait a most important area of observation will emerge, especially for our age, which at once characteristically points to the deepest peculiarities of our time. When we stand today as human beings in later life, we can no longer look in retrospect, in memory, at our youth, at our childhood, the way people once looked at their youth and childhood. Anyone who has carried out a certain inner biographical research can definitely say this. When we look back in this way, what is it that does not arise from this childhood, from this youth? What is missing is something that fills us with joy, with enthusiasm, with initiative. Something that gives us strength from a time we have lost outwardly, but which could be within us, fueling us inwardly, strengthening us within. This is expressed radically, but in a certain sense it is the case. As adults of our age we have largely lost our youth, our childhood. And this is particularly evident in the fact that, if we now take a closer look at social life, as adults we find it so difficult to come to terms with young people. It is again a general feature of our age. There is a striving, brewing in youth, but this youth then generally arrives at a view that old age can no longer provide what the heart and soul long for. A deep gulf has appeared in our age, though some do not admit it, nevertheless it is so, between the young and the adult generation. But this very gulf indicates, you might say, that even though we bring with us through birth into the world today, into this physical existence, our full childlike youthful humanity, whatever our origin may be, we do not find what we demand from life by virtue of the eternal which is born with us. Precisely by the fact that young people do not find this in cultural life in general, precisely by this is revealed what is so strongly missing today. The youth movement, in quotes, this has become a common phrase today, and this youth movement manifests itself especially in those young people who are growing into the cultural professions, who are growing into a life through which they are to become leaders of the cultural, social, moral, artistic and religious strivings of our age. 
And if we now ask ourselves, why is there so little in cultural life today that satisfies young people? Then this question is, perhaps if not fully answered, at least illuminated when we look at the various branches of our cultural life. Within the horizon presented to us in the scientific, artistic, moral, social and religious fields, we find, if I may express myself in this way, that these separate branches of life, which you need if you are to become a full personality, no longer understand each other. And this is why they are in conflict with one another within the human personality. You would be a fool if you wanted to rebel today against what the scientific spirit of the last centuries has brought about in the overall development of humanity, especially since the middle of the 15th century. Anthroposophy must by no means be conceived in any respect as if it only wants to oppose this scientific spirit of our age. This very spirit has produced through scientific research an immense conscientiousness and exactness of methods. I would like to say that this has become the main question for this scientific spirit. How can we obtain surety? How can we obtain certainty in researching the truth? This current scientific spirit demands surety and certainty in its search for truth. And tremendous things have been achieved, not only for cognition, but also for practical life, especially in relation to our technical fields. And yet, if we ask ourselves, does this scientific spirit satisfy the urgent purposes of the young? Do today's young people grow into this scientific spirit in such a way that they feel there is something flowing toward them in it for their full humanity? We cannot answer this question in the affirmative. If it is answered in the affirmative, then it is because we surrender to empty illusions or because we want to spread a fog before our spiritual eyes. In fact, this scientific spirit stands in strange conflict with the other fields of life. First, let's look at the artistic field. By developing the scientific spirit with its exact methods, its strictly trained thinking, artists, those who want to pursue life artistically, who want to enjoy life artistically, feel they actually have to keep the artistic at a distance from this scientific spirit. Today we hear everywhere that what art creates, what art aims to create, must come from completely different human sources than what science fathoms in its certain intellectually observing way. And if someone wants to bring today's scientific spirit into artistic creation, then you have the feeling that it spoils this artistic creation. You feel the scientific spirit has no place in art. Science investigates the truth in a way that should not carry over into an artistic approach. Well, the Greek spirit was not at all aware of such a strict separation between what is revealed through the artistic sense and through the spirit of science. The Greek culture did not know such a strict separation between a brilliant scientific spirit and an idealistic art. And even in the most recent times, Goethe, who immersed himself completely in the Greek worldview, did not want such a separation. Goethe, for example, did not want to speak of a separate idea of truth, of beauty, of religion, or piety. Goethe wanted to know the idea as one, 
and in religion, art, and science he only wanted to see different revelations of the one spiritual truth. Goethe spoke of art as a revelation of secret natural laws that would never be revealed without art. For Goethe, on the one hand, science was actually something he engaged in as a different mode of expression than art. On the other hand, art to him was something having another form of expression. But only when both work together can a person fathom the whole truth in the Goethean sense. Today we think the scientific spirit, which goes precisely from conclusion to conclusion, from observation to observation, from experiment to experiment, must undermine the coherence of artistic imagination. And we feel there is no justification for trying to fathom anything of the truth of the world through art itself. In other words, we must make a strict separation between art and science. We must say that science strives for certainty and a conscientious method. Above all, it wants certainty in formulating things in such a way that they, if I may express myself thus, can stand there rigidly fixed and then must be recognized to be so by every impartial human mind. But in striving through science for just this great certainty, you do not have the confidence in what you fathom about nature and humanity in a way that has a meaning for the whole human being, in a way that gives satisfaction also for artistic creation, for artistic enjoyment. A firmly established science has been founded, but we do not have confidence that it can say something where it is a question of human needs beyond science itself, at least regarding more inward human needs, artistic needs. Certainly you can have a logically clear distinction between science and art. I can empathize with anyone who says, quote, if someone speaks in a derogatory sense of this distinction between science and art, well, that's just phraseology. It's rubbish. It has to be so. Close quote. As I said, I can empathize with this. Only there is something in the depths of the human soul that strives for unity, for harmony of the individual soul's activities. And while logic makes a distinction between science and art, still, something in us demands a balance, an harmonization of scientific truths and artistic truths. Something in us deeply and spiritually demands that the truths we scientifically extract from nature and the human being should also have the power to generate artistic initiative within us without falling into straw allegories or abstract symbolisms. In the depths of the soul there is definitely the need not to leave fixed and lifeless in us the knowledge that science fathoms, but to animate it in such a way that something can really flow over from this scientific cognition into art. Goethe was aware of this. For him the ripest fruits of his artistic work flowed from his conception of science. The great question, not precisely formulated but deeply felt, brings forth to us from the longings of our age. How can we gain confidence in the sciences, which have sought certainty above all else, such that we can penetrate through their realms of truth into what we encounter in artistic formation, in artistic creation? And that is one of the very deepest questions facing humanity today. 
we could debate and discuss for quite some time the need for a clear distinction between the logical, observational, scientific method and artistic formation, artistic creation. But suppose the situation in the realm of reality is such that we simply cannot get to know the real human being if, in approaching this human being from the realms of the lower natural kingdoms, we want to apply the laws of nature as we know them from today's science, which is so certain of itself. Yes, could it even be that nature herself creates artistically? Could it be that in the various realms of nature there is not only such creation as the present laws of nature foster? Could it especially not be the case in our human kingdom? Could it be, as Goethe presupposed, that nature herself is a great artist? Then we would simply limit our knowledge, even kill it. If in such a critical way we say to ourselves, we must never bring fantasy into natural science, could it be that when we so logically make such a supposition, we limit ourselves because nature is artistic and only fully surrenders to an artistic consideration. Of course, if you at first express it in this hypothetical form, as I do now, it can be contested in many ways. Only someone who is enough of a psychologist to be able to look into the depths of contemporary humanity knows that there is an anxiety in human minds today when faced with the question, if we strive scientifically Shouldn't we have something in the constitution of our souls that fashions and forms artistically? And what if we can't enter nature's realm in any other way, because nature wants to be understood artistically? What if human nature wants to be artistically grasped, particularly the human physical organs? What do we do when we have such a rigorous science, and yet nature, the world, demands an artistically formulated cognition from us. Of course, I know that contemporary scientists in particular regard such a sentence as an absurdity. But I also know, regardless of this, that human hearts and souls today do not regard it as an absurdity, but that they dimly, darkly feel its truth and would happily see it in the light. And it is no different when we move into other areas, the area of morality, the area of social activity and work, and the area of religious immersion. Everything that falls into these three areas has for a long time been banned from science, so to speak, precisely since the time when the scientific spirit so decisively gripped modern humanity. As far as sociology and social activity are concerned, Attempts have recently been made, particularly in political life, you need only think of Marxism, to think socially and sociologically from the scientific spirit and also to give social impulses from this science. The fruits do not exactly indicate that we are on the right path with this. Because that which moves the world today with regard to the social question and which wants to be satisfied by all possible illusions out of the modern scientific spirit, leads to such terrible disharmonies. It has led to those terrible elements of destruction that are presently working in social life today. It can be seen from this that recovery is only possible in any of these directions if a spiritual reversal can take place, 
but after all, the social cannot really be brought to a healthy condition without moral and religious foundations. And so, in relation to social life, you must first look at the moral and religious foundations of human life. And here we find it quite clearly expressed, even more clearly than with artistic experience, especially in the most recent phenomena. There is science, with its strong certainty and conscientiousness, but there is no longer any confidence in introducing the spirit of this scientific character into moral disposition and religious consciousness. And more than ever is it emphasized today by apparently advanced minds that science must remain in its place. It must be banned from everything that humanity has to strive for as impulses of moral action or religiosity. Science does not belong where only faith should belong. Just as we make a strict distinction between science and art, we also make a strict distinction between science and morality, science and religion. We would like to appeal to a special ability, to a special impulsiveness of the human soul, for this morality, for this religious life. We would like to strictly separate faith from science, just as we want to strictly separate art from science. Now, this did not prevent the scientific spirit from spreading to all current circles, from assuming the most popular forms. Today it is not just the scientists who are captured by this scientific spirit, but the whole broad mass of today's civilized humanity. Today, thanks to popular literature, from newspapers to books and through other avenues of public life, you can be a religiously pious person in the old traditional sense but still live entirely in the modern spirit of science. Therefore, no matter how strong the demand is to separate belief from scientific knowledge, this scientific knowledge appears in all possible areas as a criticism of faith. As it works today, it corrodes and dissolves this faith in many human minds. And unless a complete reversal of spiritual realities takes place, it will continue to do so. Faith and knowledge, which we want to strictly separate today, did not originate from different sources. To see this, however, you have to go back even further than for art, where you only have to go back to Greece to see that the Greeks saw artistic truth and scientific truth as a unity. You must go back to much older times in human evolution. But there you will find a time when religion is everything in which humanity, in a certain sense, immerses itself. Through their soul forces they delved into the depths of the universe such that religious life welled out of this immersion. But while this religious life welled forth from them, there stood before their souls a unity toward which they could become religiously pious, to which they could make sacrifices, and which had an effect on them by revealing itself in beauty. This could therefore at the time be enjoyed artistically. Thus, when thinking and cognition became absorbed within this religious piety, it confronted them also as the truth of the world. Science, art, and religion came from one source. However, this is not all that comes into consideration here. It is true that if we go back to the earliest times of human development, we find that science, art, and religion are a unity. They come from a common original source, and 
then later religious life becomes independent. This was already the case in Greek and Roman times, where the artistic life still remained in unity with scientific life. And only when we come to the most recent times do we find that these three branches of human personal revelation finally separate from each other. Today these three branches again strive with all their might in the unconscious and subconscious depths of humanity toward a unity, toward harmonization. Why is this? Well, you can only stand before science today in admiration. Opposition to what is truth in science would, as I said, be folly. But this science, in spite of its greatness, in spite of its triumphs, is only creative in the realms of thought, in the field of observation, or the regulated observations of experiments. This must be said. Science has only been creative in relation to what can be obtained from the human mind through logical judgment and observation. In these areas, during the last centuries, science has achieved great and original things. But if we look at other areas of life, the artistic or the moral religious, then we have to say to ourselves, and again it is not something that everyone does say to themselves today, but basically all of civilized humanity feels this in the depths of their soul life, that artistic sensibility, artistic spirit, is actually not creative today. Of course, we often fool ourselves that we are creative But in the artistic field, the present age does not, overall, generate style, generate motif. In ancient times, they created style and motif. For example, the Greek era gave birth to its buildings from out of the same soul impulses from which poets created their works of art. Much was born out of the same soul impulses from which belief arose. Homer and Hesiod, by being artists, gave the Greeks their gods. We, however, only draw from artistic traditions. We build Gothic, we build classical, Baroque, and so on. But we don't build for the present. Just as little are we able to be fully modern in other realms of art. You have to express these things somewhat radically if you want to meet what is still present as reality in the deepest forces of our age. In the religious and moral realm, the traditions are even older. Our age is not creative in the religious and moral realm. Hence the conservatism of religions and the urge just to preserve the old. Hence the fear when something new appears somewhere in the field of religion. We have the artistic styles from ancient times. We have the religious content from even older times. And young people, when they grow up today, carry the longing for creativity in all areas of life through something mysterious that I cannot discuss today, through secrets that are born with them. They find this creativity in the scientific field, yet this is not enough for them. They long for something deeply creative in the artistic field. They also long deeply for creativity in the ethical and religious realm. That is why today youth does not understand old age. Old age does not understand youth. Therefore, there is a gap between the two. All of this basically characterizes our present age. But it does not yet show the deep dichotomy in humanity itself, which actually led to everything that I have just described. 
and in order to find this deep dichotomy, we have to look at the peculiarity of human nature as it has developed in the scientific age, that is, since the middle of the 15th century. There we see, if we look at the human being today, in a very impartial way, two poles in human nature. Basically, these two poles rule our entire spiritual life, but they do not meet our human needs. These two poles are, on the one hand, a strong inner intense self-consciousness, which modern humanity has developed in the last centuries, and on the other hand, the special way we have come to understand the outer world through our modern abilities. Let's take a closer look at these poles. When I speak of self-consciousness, of the I, capital, consciousness of modern humanity, I do not at all mean only that which arises, so to speak, in the loneliness of the philosopher's room, a human self-consciousness that apprehends the idea, the pure concept. It was on this that Hegel developed a worldview in such a grandiose way. We see in Hegelian philosophy only an infinitely ingenious embodiment of a self-consciousness which can be experienced when it becomes fully aware of itself. Even the anti-Hegelian philosophers proceed from self-consciousness. They despise that broad training in the ideal spiritual that was achieved by Hegel out of the self-consciousness. And although they despise the Hegelians, they also start from self-consciousness. They want to merely stay at the point of self-consciousness, which they continue to stare at, but which does not expand like Hegel's did. However, by only characterizing this philosophical apprehension of self-consciousness, even if one descends more into the concrete scientific from the philosophical realm, you cannot really characterize the nature of the present age for a reason that became quite apparent in a conversation I had with Edward von Hartmann. We were discussing what can be achieved epistemologically through a critical analysis of self-consciousness when Edward von Hartmann said, quote, you shouldn't have any books printed about such things today. They should merely be hectographed so that there are only a few copies, perhaps 60 copies in existence. For only that many people in Germany, out of 60 million, are interested in such things. Close quote. This is also true when it comes to the most intimate philosophical matters. Therefore, you cannot expect that I will bother you here with how self-consciousness is being expressed in German philosophical consciousness today. But since the last century, this self-consciousness has not only shown itself to the inquiring philosopher, it shows up in all areas of human life, and it is this that I really mean. Just the way people think about themselves today, how strongly they feel their own being, their I, capital, is certainly not taken into account by external historical research, but inner historical research knows of it. Thus people simply did not think about themselves, did not recognize or know about themselves in this way before the 15th century. They were much more obtuse within. They did not say I with such intensity as it has been pronounced in civilized society since then. So there has been a general intensification of inner experience. This intensification is demonstrated in the field of science 
when you completely reject a belief in authority, when you just want to accept only that which can be justified to your own self-consciousness. It manifests itself in the artistic field in that people want above all to form into, to shape into their artistic creations what they can experience in their deepest self-consciousness. It shows itself in the religious field in that people can only fully experience something divine when it sinks into their inmost self, which they experience forcefully and intensively, which they want to experience together with the divine, in order for it to have any validity, any meaning at all. In the moral sense, as I already demonstrated in my title, Philosophy of Freedom, Collected Works Number 4, in the 90s of the last century, humanity strives for impulses, for ethical motives, for ethical rules of life that arise from this ground of intensive self-consciousness. And in social life today, we have the peculiar phenomenon that social demands appear everywhere. It is said everywhere, we need a social structuring of life. But in essence, human perception is very far removed from social perceptions, from social feelings. And precisely because we lack social feeling, we demand a social organization of life. We would like what is actually lacking within us to come from outside. We say we have to become social beings. This is because in recent times, especially while the science of spirit has grown powerful, we have basically only become strong in our I feeling, in what is antisocial and egotistical. And thus today we seek a balance between this strong I and social demands. And so we encounter this self-consciousness in all areas of human life, study the social questions today as they arise out of the structuring of human work. You need a heartfelt sense for what has become of social questions under the influence of modern technology. Its forces have taken many people away from an immediate connection with joyful work and placed them in front of indifferent machines. In this field, too, a social will cannot emerge from an awakened self-consciousness because when this self-consciousness is placed in front of a machine, it cannot feel satisfied in the least. Now, this is the one side, the self-consciousness of modern humanity. But how could this self-consciousness come to have the power that it has? How has this modern humanity awakened to such a strong sense of self? You can only come to this self-consciousness through a special development of the life of thought, the life of ideas. Thought did not play the role in earlier epochs of humanity that it does in modern times. But this self-consciousness has grown strong precisely because people have become capable of thinking more and more abstractly, more and more intellectually. Self-consciousness grew strong under the power of thought. And so we came to develop thinking to the highest degree, whereas earlier we lived more in feeling, in looking, in intuition and imagination and inspiration, even if these were more dreamlike and unconscious. Humanity has developed thinking, and with thinking it was possible for us to achieve, through thought, our strong self-consciousness. But because of this, humanity has arrived at a one-sided spiritual life. Thought distances us 
from reality. Who does not have the feeling that thought can never achieve full reality, that thought remains only a picture of reality? Through a picture of reality, we modern people have developed our strong self-consciousness. Therefore, it is like this. Even if people do not yet become fully conscious of it, even if they cannot express it yet, they feel it, they sense it. And today's young people feel with particular intensity that a person is standing there with unreal thoughts. At the one pole we face reality with our self-consciousness, a self-consciousness that has been grasped through thinking. It cannot get close to life. It remains an image. It is powerless against life. We are completely within ourselves in our self-consciousness. We stand as strongly as possible inwardly within ourselves, but nevertheless we are powerless. We do not penetrate reality with our thoughts. This is the one pole of our modern intellectual life, the impotence of self-conscious thinking. This feeling of the powerlessness of the self pervades modern humanity. This is why we tend to approach life without joy, without inner devotion, even without understanding. Because the strongly developed I, this strong self-consciousness, must always feel powerless in relation to the life in which we have to work. That is the one pole. And the other pole presents itself to modern humanity in the fact that while in the past we grasped all sorts of things from the depths of our souls, or, as it is popular to say today, we believed to have grasped something of reality, today we only trust something when we can follow it in the external world through observation. We want nothing from within ourselves mixed in when we follow the external world through experiments in so-called objective observation. The inner being is supposed to be completely silent when observing or experimenting. Only the outside world should speak. How has this arisen? We research this external world by faithful observation in exact experiments. But through this research, we can basically only get as far as a mechanism. The universe has become a mechanism for astronomy. The formative earth has become a mechanism for geology. The human organism itself has become a mechanism. And any modern neo-vitalistic attempts are completely inadequate at achieving anything through the scientific method. This is now recognized. Thus, in experiment, in observation, this approach only leads, radically speaking, to an understanding of the machine. When we come to understand a machine by not mixing anything into the context of the physical and mechanical laws that we weave into the web of the machine, we believe we can penetrate what is in front of us. In a certain sense, we can see through it completely. We see how the individual connections of a mechanism work together, run and mesh into each other. First of all, because we have been trained from the perspective of this newer direction of the mind, of the spirit, we feel satisfied that we understand the machine. We are satisfied that we understand the universe, the cosmos, with its interlocking wheels and so on, as a machine. We think we are satisfied, but inwardly we are not. There remains something in this understanding of the machine that pushes us back, especially with regard to our full humanity. 
An understanding of the machine is what has actually contributed to the greatness, to the triumphs of the modern scientific spirit. Why? The machine becomes transparent to us, not for the eyes, but for the understanding, for cognition. When we look into an organism, things remain obscure at first for external observation, whereas everything in the machine is transparent. But we ought to ask, do we understand the diamond better because it is transparent? It is simply not true that what becomes transparent outside our own being therefore becomes more comprehensible to us. Because eventually, when we face it, we feel more and more that which works in the machine as something alien to our own being. And that is the unconscious feeling that asserts itself. There is the machine. It becomes transparent to the mind, but is nothing we can find within ourselves. It is completely alien to us. And so we feel pushed out of the world we understand as a machine. We feel pushed out by the other pole of our spiritual life. While from the one pole we are powerless to enter reality, from the other pole the reality that we do understand pushes us out. That is the deep dichotomy in modern humanity. We develop our self-consciousness through thinking, but with this thinking we can no longer enter the world. We derive the machine from the world. But when we understand it, we are pushed back because it has nothing in common with our humanity. Thinking makes us unreal. The reality of observation pushes us back. How else might you describe the dichotomy of modern intellectual life? These are its two roots, these two poles of modern intellectual life the impotence of self-conscious thinking with its merely pictorial character, which is unable to penetrate into full reality, and the mechanistically presented contents of observation and experimentation, which repel us as alien to our own being. I am apparently only speaking about the field of science in speaking of these things, but what is being discussed pervades our whole modern life. Now, on the one side, there is this modern spiritual life with the two poles just described. On the other side is anthroposophy. Here we try not to stop at self-consciousness through thinking, but to progress in inner development through inner soul exercises, which I will have to describe later. We progress from what we have naturally in our thinking. From this thinking we progress through exercises, to a vividly clear, formative, imaginative way of thinking. We progress to thinking that then becomes so strong that it becomes seeing. It becomes as strong as otherwise only our sense impressions are. I am only hinting at these things today. In the next few days I will have to describe how you actually come to clairvoyant seeing of a supersensible world by developing thinking itself. But when you advance to imagination through the development of thinking, then you stand there with this imagination that is nothing other than a further developed thinking, no longer alone with a self-consciousness that has become alien to reality. Then you stand in a new spiritual reality, 
You stand in the reality in which you stood before you descended from the soul-spirit world into physical embodiment. Then if you really develop self-conscious thinking in a systematic way, a consciousness that normally leads to loneliness in relation to the world, you get to know your prenatal life. It is precisely the thinking that has been trained in imagination that leads to a new reality. It leads to a reality that out of yourself has taken hold of your physical body. Our I, capital, expands beyond our birth or conception. We attain to a spiritual world. If, on the other hand, you grasp observation and experimentation, precisely from the spirit of modern science, then you become aware that in the experiment thinking is completely silent. But many people are not aware of this. Anyone who really follows the experimental process of scientific research will find in experimentation that thinking only, in quotes, notifies. Such thinking really only understands events statistically and forms laws, but it does not become immersed in reality. What connects with reality in the experiment is the human will, human volition. A deeper psychology will recognize this more and more. Anthroposophy conducts research in such a way that, on the one hand, it develops thinking into imagination, and on the other it develops the will into inspiration and intuition. As I said, I will have to discuss the details in the next few days. Today I would just like to state the principles. When you achieve this strengthening of the will, which otherwise remains as dark as the state of sleep for your consciousness, in the same way as you strengthen thinking for imagination, you now make your own soul organism transparent. You make not your physical body, but your own spirit-soul body transparent. This means you develop in relation to your own being what you previously developed only for the external world, for the mechanism, for the machine. This, your own being, however, then presents itself in a completely different way. You are not pushed back. You grasp what has streamed into your being from the whole cosmos with such transparency as you otherwise only have when you grasp the machine. But it is yourself that you grasp. You are not pushed back. You grasp yourself within yourself. And you grasp, first of all, in an image, what the moment of death is. You get to know the eternity of the human soul on the other side. By strengthening your will, you get to know how the body becomes transparent. And by such clear vision, you learn to understand how you make the passage through the gate of death. You learn how you go out of the body to enter a world of spirit and soul. Through the further development of thinking, we learn to cognize what is before birth. Through the cultivation of our will, through the training of the will, we learn to cognize what is after, what lies beyond death. We learn to cognize ourselves in a reality, learn to place ourselves into this reality. We don't stay isolated within ourselves. We learn to develop a way of thinking which penetrates into life, namely, into spiritual life. And we learn to observe something, first in ourselves, then in the world, which does not push us back, but rather connects with this developed thinking.
we bridge the abyss that lies between the two poles of self-conscious thinking and mechanistic observation. Through anthroposophic research, we acquire a way of thinking that is not powerless in the face of reality, but submerged in reality. We get to know a reality that reaches up into the inner soul life, the developed will, which in turn now also reaches up into thinking. We expand thinking so that it can immerse itself in reality. We expand willing so far that it can reach thinking. Within this spiritual life we grasp the full reality within which the human being, our own self, now stands. This arises in the human being in three stages of cognition. It arises in imaginative cognition, through which thinking is first intensified to the point of imagery, is strengthened inwardly to the point where you first see the supersensible, the spiritual world, in images. Then comes inspired cognition. You can find out more about this in my book, Title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, Collected Works, Volume 10. In the next few days, I will also have to characterize many things. Through inspired cognition, the spiritual world penetrates into our soul. Then comes intuitive cognition, through which we place ourselves within the spiritual beings of the world. However, without yourself becoming a spiritual researcher, you can grasp simply through common sense what the spiritual researcher draws out of the supersensible world through imagination, inspiration, and intuition. If you acquire these truths, for example, the truths that are attained through imaginative cognition, then you enrich your inner soul life. How do you enrich the inner soul life? Now, with what is rightly described so magnificently as our scientific life, our scientific spirit, we actually live in an intellectualistic state of mind. Such a state is only appropriate for us when we are fully grown, when we have at least reached our twenties. Let's look at the age period immediately preceding this, at the period from the fourteenth to the twentieth or twenty-first year. Someone who can really focus on such things, who has a deeper grasp of the psychology of the soul and can research it, can perceive that we live during this period not in abstract thoughts, but in intense soul experiences which emerge from within. There with inner intensity and full of power are the inwardly full-blooded ideals of youth, which are not just experienced as pale, dull thoughts. There the young human being is under the impressions of an inner impulsiveness. What is it that is effective there? Well, what is effective in such a young person actually lives in them in a half-dream. You do not become conscious of it at this age. Even ordinary science cannot bring it to consciousness. This ordinary science will never fathom what goes on in the human mind, what even goes on in the human body between the fourteenth and twenty-first years. Only imaginative cognition teaches us to bring this to consciousness. In our youth, there works subconsciously in us what can only be revealed consciously through imaginative cognition. Young people who have passed their fourteenth year, whoever knows real pedagogy is aware of this, 
they long for a cognition that is imaginative, because only then do they understand themselves. Otherwise, they have to wait beyond the twentieth year until the intellectualistic life fully enters into them. And then they can only come to a thinking consciousness within which they are alone, isolated. Up to this point in human life, if I may so express myself, they are bored. They demand a revelation from the ancients, a revelation that these ancients, as teachers, educators, and guides, could only give if they possessed imaginative knowledge. Then they would be able to tell these young people what they are. And between the change of teeth and sexual maturity, we live an inner bodily, soul, spiritual life that takes place unconsciously. What is reality there can only be understood by inspired cognition. External, intellectual, experimental cognition cannot know it actually works itself out in us during childhood. Everything wants to be shaped according to artistic impulses, not to the laws of nature. Inspirations from the universe work into us. And adults will only be able to know what these children long for, those roughly speaking between the ages of seven and fourteen, what their whole feeling and willing strives for, if they know something about inspired cognition. We are only able to talk to children in a truly instructive and educational way if we know something about inspired world cognition. And especially with very young children, quote, if you do not become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdoms of heaven, close quote. It is a profound truth, these words of Christ. In this age during infancy, during the age up to the change of teeth, the child lives through the integration of the soul and spirit into the physical body. Such a working in of forces, a plastic shaping of the body out of the soul, can only be grasped with intuitive cognition. Therefore, children will only understand us feelingly, instinctively, and be influenced by us in the right way if we can receive religiously formed truths from training in intuitive cognition. Thus, young people do not understand the older generation today in our spiritual age because we are basically losing our youth. However, we would not lose it if what we experienced in childhood and adolescence could be remembered at a later mature age by looking back through the cognition that comes from imagination, inspiration, and intuition. With this cognition, we can immerse ourselves in our childhood, in our adolescence. With this knowledge, we as teachers, as educators, as leaders of humanity, could speak to children, to youth, in such a way that they would learn to understand us instinctively. This is the only way to fill the gap between youth and old age. It will not be possible to fill it in any other way. And if there is not the will to bridge or fill the gap in this way, our age will show more and more what it is already showing, that the young do not understand the old, that old age does not understand youth. And the consequence of this is that people do not understand each other and our social life becomes more and more impossible. Only by establishing cognition in accordance with the spirit, 
if I may use this Gertian expression, by expanding our scientific spirit to spiritual cognition, only in this way will humanity be able to fully understand itself. Then humanity will arrive at the point where we no longer feel so powerless to penetrate reality, but are able to observe reality in such a way that it does not push us away. Only in this way will we be able to bring the two poles into a living balance, the pole of thought and the pole of reality, which are so alien to one another in modern humanity. Thus, although it did not arise in an abstract way from the observation of the pursuits and longings of our age, anthroposophy, having arisen on a scientific foundation, can nevertheless show how in the most important spheres of the age it may accomplish, or at least be capable of accomplishing, what in the deepest sense of the word this age demands. I wanted to put this forward as an introduction, as a sort of foreword to our considerations of the next few days, thereby characterizing how anthroposophy would like to understand itself. It would like to understand itself in such a way that it is not dead, abstract knowledge, not merely knowledge in theories. Anthroposophy would like to flow into people, not only as thoughts and not only as results of observations, but as the life-blood of the soul. It is grasped through life and in life and is itself living cognition. It wants to be present as life itself within humanity. Certainly anthroposophy would have to be the most immodest of the immodest if it wanted to awaken the belief that so and so many world riddles exist and so and so many world riddles can be solved. This is not the point. Life is full of riddles. And only as long as there are riddles will there be life. For we have to experience the riddles, and only in experiencing these riddles can we continue our existence in a truly human way. A world without questions would be an inanimate world. It is not that anthroposophy promises to solve all the riddles of life, but it wishes, through its own character, to be able to serve life. It wants, through the power of cognition, to give a real foundation to the whole, full human being, the artistic, the religious, the moral, and the social human being. Anthroposophy wants to serve life. It would like to serve this life, not by being merely dead, but by being living cognition, and thus developing its own life force. It wants to serve life, and nothing can serve life other than life itself. Therefore, anthroposophy would like to become life itself in order to serve the life of humanity. The end of Lecture 1